0: Good morning to each of you. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Master. While we celebrate today his birth as a baby that's not where he still is. In our class, there was a comment made. It's amazing how, how Satan was right there to attack Jesus right from the get-go trying to destroy him. And while that is true, I had to ponder perhaps the, the word the word game is not the right word. But in the, the duel, the fight, perhaps Satan realized that this was this was the last hand. This battle between good and evil, between God and Satan has been going on, had been going on for generations, for thousands of years. And now this is the hand that matters. Satan realized the Son of God on earth, incarnate, was something that they called for special attention. All forces I'd like to look at two different aspects of of Jesus and his coming this morning. A title could be Jesus Preeminent and Anticipated. To begin with, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. The main thought that, that I had here and, and see from these scriptures and like to point out, and that is that Jesus, well, God revealed himself to humanity in many ways throughout the course of time. Jesus was the, the cap sheaf could we say, the the completion of the revelation of God to man. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, And the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe that, in a nutshell, is what makes the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, so special, so important. The prophets had messages that were from God. In Numbers 12, when Miriam and Aaron became frustrated at Moses' wife and began to doubt his, his calling of God, in, in verse 6 of Numbers 12, God speaking says, and he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. So God saying, I speak to the prophets. If I have something, I make it known. It was interesting, the dreams in this morning's lesson, God speaking to people. But then in verse seven, he goes on. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then, were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You see, I think Moses, and we see other places in in Hebrews especially, and, and others perhaps, where Moses was held up as that kind of the epitome of God's speaking and interaction with man in the Old Testament. The Pharisees, the other Jews there around the time of Christ, they held on to Moses. They, What Moses said carried weight. He was their, their standard of who they wanted to, to respect and honor. They were children of, of Abraham, but Moses gave them their word from God. Well, if we go to Hebrews chapter ten, the writer here contrasts. I'd like to begin a break in at verse twenty-six of Hebrews ten. says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God? and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Transgressing the law of Moses was not something to be taken lightly. Yet, how much worse to transgress, to to make light of, The words of the Son of God, the provisions of Christ, the blood that He shed. If we go on in Hebrews to chapter 12, continuation of this concept in verse 18, I'd like to just pick out a few verses here in this passage beginning of verse 18 just to get the, the gist of the thought. it says, "For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkest and tempest and it goes on. That's not the mountain that we as as God's people in the New covenant are coming to. Verse 22 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, being Moses, much more shall we not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven the words of the prophet the words of moses were god's words to be heeded how much more him that came from heaven to stand on earth and speak Jesus gave a parable in Mark chapter 12 that, well, parables, sometimes it's hard to know how to take them because there's a lot of different implications that could be drawn out. Jesus used it against the Pharisees, but I think it points something else here out too. I'll just tell it here. It says that the the man planted a vineyard and he got everything ready and then when it was was time to harvest, he sent a servant and said, I I need something back from my vineyard. It was only due. his, His fit was come. His rent was due. And they caught the first servant, beat him. They caught the second servant, beat him. The third one they killed. And the... The man that planted the vineyard said, Having therefore yet one son, his well-beloved, he sent him unto them at last, saying, They will reverence my son. The best he could send, the most authoritative, the most precious figure that he could send, his son. And in the parable, those husbandmen, those keepers of the vineyard said, This is the heir. Let us kill him. Springs brings out the preeminence of the Son of God, the preeminence of Christ in bringing the message, the, the revelation of God to us. If we go to Colossians chapter one. You're reading a few verses there. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is expounding about the work of Christ. And in verse 13, he says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, Jesus wasn't just showing us who God was. He lived here, Emmanuel, God with us. The very the very image of the invisible God. It says here that in him all fullness would dwell. Who do we look for? Look to for our understanding of who God is. Over in chapter two of Colossians, beginning verse six, as ye have therefore received Jesus Christ, the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. See, here again, we're we're warned not to take our cues from philosophy. Beware of those that want to deceive us in, in pointing out things, ways that we should be living that are not after Christ. It says here, traditions of men, rudiments of the world, going back to the law perhaps, there's different aspects. Where do we take our cues? Where are we establishing, upon what are we establishing our faith? For in Him, in Christ, the person of Christ, that Savior born, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In John chapter 1, Verse 17 For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Again, Christ is the way we see God perfectly. But as Jesus said, of himself in Matthew 5, 17. He says, I didn't come to annul the law or the prophets. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? That Jesus Christ is preeminent, Well, in part, I just I think it is important that we realize this because God, as I mentioned earlier, God revealed himself in different ways. And if you go back and study through the, the Old Testament and how God worked with people and revealed himself, there were different names by which God was called that people began to see another aspect of his character and who he was. In Christ, we see it all. And we need to view all the revelation of God through the lens of Jesus. When we look at the Old Testament, we read it through the filter of Jesus. How does the law affect me? We measure it by the life of Christ. We read the epistles through the lens of the life of Christ. Jesus has the last word. It doesn't make the rest of Scripture irrelevant, but it helps us determine how to interpret it. Christians in the past have gone to the Old Testament to justify many actions and behaviors that when measured and weighed in the balance, by the life of Christ are found wanting. War. Where in the New Testament do you go to promote Christians in warfare? What did Jesus teach on that? What did his life demonstrate? Violence, divorce, polygamy, All these things were things that were in the Old Testament. Jewelry. How do they measure up with the life of Christ? Christ, the preeminent one. Our concept of the preeminence of Christ is the basis upon which we establish our faith and how we view who God is. Secondly, this morning, I would like to think about Christ. He came. What next? Hebrews 9 we were in Hebrews earlier around this passage. In Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. Take these verses perhaps out of out of their context, but I trust not out of context. He's looking at at the the life the, the priests and the way that they would take blood in, in to offer for the, for the sins of the people. And it says, Jesus only offered himself once. And then in verse 27, it says, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I'd like to read that in a few other translations. In the New King James, it says, verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The literal standard version So also the Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time apart from a sin offering for salvation to those waiting on him. And from the ESV, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What what phrase sticks out to you in that verse? Eagerly waiting. I think each, well, most of those use that word eagerly. Um, King James uses the word look. The others all use the word eagerly. Eagerly anticipating. This time, he's coming back not to be a sin offering. As it says here, apart from sin. Well, what does that mean? The others say not, well, the King James says without sin, another apart from sin, apart from a sin offering, not to deal with sin, but he's coming back for those that are waiting to complete their salvation, to to bring the fullness of salvation. Let's go back to Christmas, the first Christmas. Who, who recognized Jesus for who he was? How many people recognize Jesus for who he was at his birth or shortly thereafter? I don't think it was that many, but I think you'll find it was those who were eagerly waiting. Turn to Luke chapter 2. There's there's an implication in some verses I read earlier that that we can be spoiled, and I'm not sure what a, a better word would be there, but um, taken off track by traditions of men and rudiments of the world and as I as I think about this who were, who actually recognized Christ, I had to think of, of those of the the establishment of the day, they were so wrapped up. The the Pharisees had their, I forget the the terms that they used, but they had the Torah, but then they had the fence around the Torah and all their laws that were made to to make sure they didn't offend anybody or anything. And and I, I heard it again recently that Jews have to have two sets of cookware. Were you aware of that? Some of you, I'm sure. I wasn't until there was a couple years ago I heard this, but it was heard it again because you can't cook a dairy dish in a, in a same kettle that you cook meat in because you can't see the goat in its mother's milk and there might have been the residue of milk in there that you cook meat in. A lot of these laws that, that, that blinded them from seeing Christ But in Luke 2, I'd like to read verses 22 and following. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Notice Mary and Joseph following what they knew. They were following the law. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him and Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother behold this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against yea a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed and there was one Anna a prophetess the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher she was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in at that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here we have a record of two people that saw Jesus as a baby, as a young child at eight days old for what he was. Yes, Simeon was filled with the Holy Ghost, not said of many people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. But he was a just man, he was a devout man, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I don't know what that word consolation would be rendered other in other. I don't have a way. I didn't get that looked up. He wasn't just looking for deliverance from Rome. He was looking for that light, that spiritual light, and he recognized God had said, "You will see the one that will will bring this." He saw that. Anna came in. We don't know that much of her, but she was an old woman that had lived as a a widow. For many years, it says that she was continually serving God. She lived a life of prayer and fasting. And when she saw Jesus, she likewise recognized him. Was she one of the first missionaries? She spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. There were others about her that she knew were also diligently and eagerly awaiting the Messiah. And she spoke of him to them. He was anticipated. Yes, many were looking for the Messiah, but many missed him. The testimony is is given of Joseph of Arimathea that when Christ was crucified, he went and begged the body of Jesus. And it says that he was an honorable counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God. He sensed something that many of the other Pharisees missed. That was his first coming, who was anticipating. Isaiah chapter twenty five. I'd like to read a few verses there. How much of the scripture is prophecy? And I've read I've read that number and I don't have it. But prophecy is something that is amazing and faith building, but it's also sometimes confusing because what did God say to about Moses? He said, The prophets I speak in dreams and visions. Moses, I speak, I forget how exactly how I said it, I speak plainly, not in dark speeches. I tell him exactly what it means. And a lot of the prophecies we have are those dreams and visions. We don't have it exactly like it, the full understanding. But here in, in Isaiah 25, <clears> then <throat> at verse 6, it says, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall be taken away from off all the earth for the Lord has spoken it. Verse 9. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The verse here that that stuck out to me. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people. In the veil that is spread over all nations, the light would come. There would be an understanding of what God really had for people, not just His people, for all people. Death. would be swallowed up in victory. Does that sound like a familiar passage? In 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. But what about the last half of that verse? The Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of His people shall be taken away. You know, I think we see parts of these prophecies coming to pass in the first coming of Christ. And I think there's many parts of these that are yet to be fulfilled. Parts of verses, parts of concepts. Zechariah. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Let's see here. Actually, I'm not in the wrong one. chapter. 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the cult, a colt the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even unto the ends of the earth. Now we know that Jesus fulfilled part of that, right? His triumphal entry. He came riding on a donkey. But has... The bow been cut off from Jerusalem. Has war ceased? We believe that he is sovereign. He is over all. But has his dominion, has he spoken peace to the heathen yet? I just want us to think about the Lord coming again. When Jesus said his work was finished there on the cross, he said, it is finished. What did he mean? I believe that sin offering part was finished. But that doesn't mean that his work in his building of his kingdom was finished. Hebrews chapter 10 again, this time in verse 12, verses 12 and 13. Christ says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. See there, that part's done, but there's a part yet to come. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, for our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought he was already here. but our mind, our heart is not here in this, in this world. Our, our, our conversation, what we think about is in heaven from whence we look for Christ again. Verse 21, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The time of the change of our bodies Redemption of our bodies like to His glorious body. And it's that same power whereby He will subdue all things to Himself. And there we go to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 22 to 28. says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order Christ, the first fruits afterward, they that are Christ, it is coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the father, when he shall have put down all rule and all power and all excuse me, put down all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot of pronouns there. But it says God has put all things under the feet of Christ. excepting himself, the father. Not all things are under him yet, but they will be. And then Christ will take everything and subject it unto the Father. That's yet to happen. Are you looking forward to Christ's second coming? Are you anticipating it? Are you being distracted? Paul says to Timothy, I know there's laid up a crown of righteousness for me, And not for me also, not for me, but all them also that love his appearing. I think that love is that eager anticipation. They're looking for it. What impact should that have on our lives? In Hebrews 10 again. We're encouraged to draw near with a true heart, to hold fast our profession, to consider one another, to provoke each other to love and good works, to be to be concerned about our brothers and sisters and to be encouraging them to not forsake assembling together. as the manner of some is, verse 25, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth, therefore no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. You see, there's, there's something we're looking forward to and we can either look forward in hope or we look forward in fear. But jumping out a few verses to the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 32 to 39. Some of these verses here seem foreign to us. But we need to be reminded of them as we anticipate the return of Christ. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. You see, conversion brought suffering. It brought conflict. What did that conflict look like? Verse 33, Partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So he's saying, while yes, some of you suffered the loss of your property and were made fun of, others of you simply, igno- uh, you, you became, I don't know, that's the word I want, you, you associated with me. Yes, we know Paul. He's my brother in Christ. And they were willing to be reproached with him. And some took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Does your confidence have great recompense of reward? There's something coming, okay? Verse 36, For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that draw back unto perdition, but unto them that believe to the saving of the soul. Hardship will come in different ways to different people, and sometimes it may seem like God is tarrying and that Jesus will not come again. Let's not become discouraged, let's not become careless and lax. In closing, I'd like to read. Three verses from Second Peter chapter 3. Very familiar verses come to my mind often. Verses 12 to 14 of Second Peter 3. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for these things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. For anticipating, we need to be diligent. We need to be diligent. I think that diligence primarily comes in measuring our lives by the life of Christ. Letting him have the preeminence that we can be without spot and blameless. There's a song, a Christmas song that we we sing. We sang it here a couple weeks ago. And we sang it when we were caroling the other night. And then I was thinking about it again. It's a It's a... Beautiful song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It was written in the 12th century. Now the tune that we have, I think, you know, that was, I'm not sure when it was put together. Uh, It says it's a 15th century here, number 204. But as I look at this song, like a lot of other Christmas songs, is it a Christmas song? I see, yes, Emmanuel, God with us, Christmas, right? That's what Jesus, they said, call his name Emmanuel. Let me read verse 2. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. In verse 4, O come, thou key of David, Come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. We still live in a world that has misery. I think this is looking forward to that key of David when he comes and he subdues all things to himself and then presents it to the Father. And then we will be with God. a beautiful picture. Let's anticipate Christ's second coming. Shall we have a song?